thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, it's a pleasure to come here to speak to you and have you on the documentary. Um, going back to your childhood, you was a Glasgow Rangers fan. Um, how difficult was it for you to actually play for Celtic, their big rivals? Uh, it wasn't difficult to, to make a decision because um, I was never asked to go to Rangers. So, I mean, for me to go to Celtic, the biggest and most important thing to me was football. Um, I supported Rangers as a boy, as thousands of people do in Glasgow. Um, and it's a little bit uncommon, but not original, that a Rangers supporter signed for Celtic. So, but football was very important to me. And at that time, Celtic had a great team. And I knew where it was going. I knew that it was going to be a, a great opportunity for me to, to progress my footballing career. And that was, that was my dream, to become a footballer. And I was very fortunate that, that Celtic gave me the opportunity to, to, to have a start to fulfil that dream. Was it ever an issue with your family or your friends that you played for Celtic or you didn't, you know, obviously being a, being, having this great divide in Glasgow, um, did you ever get any stick for playing for Celtic or were there any, any comments? Well, you always get stick for whoever you played for. Um, but certainly the family were, were totally supportive of, of myself um, and my decision. Uh, it was football, as I say, that was more important than, than whichever team you supported and religion's never been that important to me anyway. Do, do you believe that Scotland's clubs can compete on an equal footing at the moment with the rest of Europe? No, I don't. I don't think that that would be the case. Um, you've got to take into consideration the fact there's only five million people up there. Um, they've got two teams in Celtic Rangers who are massively supported. But, um, the rest of the country um, don't generate enough income from television revenues or sponsorships or any anywhere that can compete with the bigger clubs in Europe. When you consider the dance transfer for anything that's been mentioned for 45 to 50 million pounds, then that's a turnover for one of the two clubs I would have thought. So it's, they don't compete in a fair footage, but that's not to say that uh, in years to come they, they could barely compete a little bit better than what they have done. Um, Rangers have done particularly well recently in European competitions and with a little bit more luck, they could have taken it forward. This year Celtic have the opportunity, so you can see how they do and then judge it. But I don't think it's a, it's a level playing field for Scottish clubs to compete with the rest of Europe. Um, looking at <coughs> historical uh, personality in Scottish football, Jockstein, what was your um, impressions of him as a person and as a coach? He was a, he was a visionary as a coach. Um, obviously he came to Celtic and never had a very distinguished footballing career as a player. But that soon changed when he became manager of Celtic and his career in uh, coaching was, was unparalleled and he was the first um, manager to bring the, the cup back to, as some people say, Britain, but as we say, the only time to Scotland. Um, very thorough, very knowledgeable, um, very strict disciplinarian, um, but on the whole, very fair. Um, and in behind this facade, which you only see after you leave him, or when he's left Celtic, uh, he was a caring type of person as well. And if he walked into a crowded room, um, you would know that he was there, even if you were back to the door. He just is such a presence about him. And Jock Steen and the rest of the staff at Celtic have an awful lot to thank for, uh, because they put me on the right lines towards a, a footballing career that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, 
Can you remember your first meeting with him? What was it like? Uh, the first time really I saw him closely was was probably when I was about 15 or 16 years of age. Um, I was playing with an amateur side in Glasgow called Glasgow United. Um, and we went to play against uh, Celtic's young boys. And two or three of the lads in our team were already signed for Celtic. And he was there to watch the game. Um, we won 3-2. I scored one of the goals. Uh, and he spoke to the manager and said they'd like to have him up at Celtic for training. Um, and that was the first time really that uh, I'd seen him. Obviously apart from television or his picture in the newspaper. Um. Celtic won nine leagues on, in a row there. They were obviously the most dominant club in Scotland. Um, um, how hard was it to motivate themselves to continue with that success? Well, I wasn't involved in all nine. I just got there at a later stage of it. Um, and if you keep freshing the squad up, it's no difficult to motivate the new guys that's come in. I mean, the older players have, have already uh, tasted it, they've sampled it, they've enjoyed it. So. With new hunger coming in, that, that gives them the, the added enthusiasm or the freshness to go and try and retain the title that they won the year before. It's never a problem to go, or it was never a problem for me anyway, to go and play football uh, and give your best and hopefully be successful. So I don't think it was a problem for too many other people coming into a club. I don't think the problem uh, um Celtic or after that Liverpool was that they had... Uh, They'd had success the year before. I think that made them all the more determined to go and be successful the following year. In the end, it was Aberdeen who broke the sort of old firm stranglehold in Scottish football. What, why, um, why do you reckon that was the case? I think the manager had an awful lot to do with it. Alec Ferguson had taken over um, and he'd done particularly well uh, at Aberdeen. And there's nobody could doubt the, the man's quality. Uh, people maybe say, well, it's not, it was only Scotland. But Aberdeen um, was a, for want of a better description, of a, a provincial club competing against the big two. And I think Fergus proved himself beyond all doubt by what he's achieved since he's come to Manchester United. Um, Rangers were the first to break the domination of Celtic, but then obviously afterwards Aberdeen came in and, and overtook the two of them for a short period of time. And after Fergie left, um, it sort of faded away a little bit. But there's a good guy before that, a guy called Eddie Turnbull, who uh, who uh, did a very good job at, at Aberdeen. And Alec came in just shortly after him. But certainly, Fergie's record speaks for itself. To take Aberdeen and win the, the Cup Winners' Cup was a marvellous achievement. In terms of the Scottish national side, um, there's a huge passion for the Scottish national side in, in, in football. Why do you think this is the case? What's it like for a player to actually put on that jersey and go out and perform for the Tartan Army? The Tartan Army is magnificent. Um, I think Scotland have qualified um, for a lot of World Cups, and I think they're one of the main reasons, the main reasons why they have qualified. Um, the support's magnificent, and obviously, if you're not doing too well, they'll let you know about that. But that's fair enough. But the support they have. Uh, and the passion for, for the country. Uh, I don't think anybody can surpass that. And on the whole, they're basically very well behaved. Every World Cup I've gone to, they've made friends with opposition fans and, and really enjoyed it and entered into the spirit of the thing. Um, to pull on the shirt of Scotland is a, was a, 
a dream as a, as a kid. Um, and to do it and qualify for World Cups was pretty successful. Obviously, once we got there, we never did particularly well. Um, the reasons why, we didn't really know. But, uh, I would think that uh, everyone would like to have done better, but I think it's still a relative success, uh, a country of our size qualifying for, for the World Cups that they have done, and hopefully they'll qualify for the next one. Um, you was at the World Cup Finals in 1974. Um, what was that like for you as an experience in your first World Cup? What do you remember about it? I remember we were desperately unlucky. I remember we won the first game against Zaire 2-0. Uh, Zaire had a Yugoslavian coach. The next game playing Yugoslavia and they lost nine. Um, we subsequently had to play Yugoslavia and finished the draw. I don't think there's seven goals between us and uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, but the thing that put us out of that one, it, that put, it put Scotland out of two or three others also, was uh, no scoring enough goals. And as I say, it's a very difficult stage, but uh, we just couldn't do it. We came very, very close to beating Brazil in the second game. Um, I can remember one hit Brendan on the shin just in front of the goal and trickling inches past the post. Uh, if I had to get in, maybe we had a different story to tell, but uh, it was a great experience. We had a disappointing ending. But as I say, we, we tried everything we could, but the goals that we didn't score against Zaire was, was what eventually put us out. We, we've actually been to Africa and spoken to some of the Zaire players that have played, played in those, that World Cup. And they told us that they actually threw the game against Yugoslavia because they hadn't been paid. Um, that, was the re that was the reason why they were beating 9-0. It was tough, obviously, for Scotland, but... Did, did, at the time, did you actually have an inkling that something wasn't right with this result, 9-0 nine, nine after you'd played them and beaten 2-0, that something something strange had happened there? No, just no. we never knew any reasons why or wherefore. But if money was a problem, if the company allows, they might have paid them for the promise to put on a better performance. Um, what, what did you make of the Zaire team when you played them? Were they, did you feel they were a good side? You know, it, I think it must have been the first time that you played against uh, an African they, side. They had a few. I think it was one of the first African teams to qualify for World Cups, and I think um, on the day they had one or two chances. We won two 0 and at the end of it, I think we were quite grateful to to have won two 0 And like anything else, it's a wee bit unknown. Um, it's always worse when you've got to play them first. The next two teams had, a, had an idea, and I think in the, in the game against Brazil, the goalkeeper let one slip through his arms between the post and himself for, for Brazil's third goal and that didn't help us either uh, but it was an experience and as I say uh, one that maybe a bit of luck and now that, that little bit of knowledge that you've given me there maybe the reasons why we never went further um, You finished that World Cup you didn't lose a game um, you left the World Cup unbeaten was that a symptom of things to come in future World Cups that Scotland would play wouldn't, wouldn't get beat, a difficult side to beat, they play well, but they wouldn't progress to the second stage. Played well against the better teams, um, and not as well as we should have done against the so-called lesser teams. Um, I think there's enough ability in, the, in the, the squads to have done a little bit better than what we did do. But to qualify, as I said earlier, is a relative success. Do, do you feel that there was a, a, a case where certain Scottish players that were based in, in the English league were neglected at the time, uh, weren't picked for Scottish sides, like Alan Hansen was a case in point, for example. There's always, um, there's always people of different opinions and 
who should play and who shouldn't play. Um, certainly Alan Hansen was a marvellous player for Liverpool. Um, never got many caps for Scotland, as many as but a lot of people think he should have. Um, and I personally think he should have got a lot more. But it's not my decision to pick the team. It's my decision to, to go on the pitch and after a master and do the best I possibly could. So, as I say, I don't know if I'd have picked the same team. And then when that came a turn for me to pick club sides, probably not too many people would have picked the same teams as I did. So, as I say, it's, there was no animosity between Anglo-Scots, as you like to call the lads that worked in England, or the home-based Scots. Once they went to play, everybody played as, as hard as they possibly could. Going, going into the 1978 World Cup in Argentina, um, there was a, a lot of hype around the Scottish side because it was a very respected team at the time. They were great players. Um, and England hadn't qualified for that World Cup, so they were the representatives of Britain as such. Um, do, you, do you remember that, going into that World Cup, the, the euphoria around the team? The manager was Alan McLeod. Um, Ali's a large-in-life character very enthusiastic and um, he drummed the, the whole uh, preparation up and their friends and we actually did a, a tour uh, um, Hamden and then on the bus down to Presswick Airport to leave um, before the World Cup which is just as well because I don't think there was too many there when we came back um, but it was uh, there was a tremendous frenzy there um, what he, I think he actually came out and said we, we could possibly win the World Cup which I think was pushing it a wee bit too much but he was just enthusiastic maybe just get carried away a wee bit about the thing but there was no malice in the man he just tried to, to hype it up a wee bit maybe he was a bit more confident than what he thought we had well, um, Beating the World, Ch uh, the World Cup runners at Holland it was probably one of the greatest games that Holland, uh, Scotland had played in the World Cup yet you lost to two lesser teams as such. Um, why do you think this happens to the Scottish national side? They find it harder to beat the easier teams. We got a draw, one each, and then we played um, Peru. And because they were from South America, everybody thought they wouldn't, they wouldn't be any good. And Cabelia soon put a stop to that. Um, they were a pretty exciting team, and they're playing their own continent. So that would be helpful to them as well. Their performance didn't help us too much, but um, as I say, Cabelius was probably the main difference between both sides. And then we go and play Holland, and at 3-1, we need to score another goal to, to get us through. And, uh, Johnny Rep raffled one in for about 30 yards. And Archie Gemmel scored one of the best goals in, in the World Cup, in a lot of people's opinion. To put us, uh, I think it was 3-1 up. Um, as I say, it was... It's an anomaly that nobody can ever answer. Why does Scotland play better against the better side? Don't know. And then if we're playing in it and we don't know either, um, then I don't know if there is an answer. But the preparation for the uh, the lesser teams is equally as hard and as diligent as what it is for the better teams. So, as I say, I don't I don't fully understand it myself. What was the reception for the team like when you arrived in Argentina? Was you well received? Yeah, very well received. Um, we went to Cordoba, I think. Uh, it was just a small town and everybody uh, received us very well. We went to stay in a hotel there, which um, 
wasn't really finished when we got there. The facilities that we were supposed to have weren't in place, but I mean, that was no excuse. Um, but we were received very well by the locals. Um, what, what were your impressions of Iran? Um, it, was, it was your first, probably your first game against an Asian team. Um, I honestly can't remember. Um, I think the goal we scored was at no G. Yeah. Uh, I don't even remember the goal, which is unusual. Um, I don't remember the game, and I'm, that's no for convenience, that. <laughs> it's just a fact. Uh, what about the <coughs> Willie Johnson doping incident? Um, what were your recollections of that? How, how did that occur? What happened? What well, after every you game, um, you have to go and give a, a urine sample. And Willie Johnson and myself's name were drawn out of the hat. And we just went in and just as a matter of course, gave him the sample and left. And I never thought any more of it. Until we woke up in the morning and um, it was mayhem. And as I say, Willie was sent home and the whole thing was in turmoil then. Did, did it affect the team badly, the fact that he was sent home? I think it's always disappointing when a member of the squad, that because you are there as, as a unit, um, has some bad news, and that was bad news for Wally, bad news for us. Um, and I don't think you could use that as an excuse for the performance against Peru. Um, you've just got to live with those things, but I think people would have fell for Wally Johnson, yeah. Um, in terms of the 82 World Cup, um, he was drawn in a Joining against Brazil, who were the big tournament favourites in that competition in Spain. Um, how good do you think that Brazil team of 82 was? Well, I think they were unlucky to lose to, to Italy in the last stages. Um, we were even more unlucky that we got drawn against them. And I think when David Neri scored his goal, I think, uh, which was a great goal, I think that got them angry. And they came out in the second half and, and scored four. Um, ah, they were a class act, some great players. Socrates, Falcao, um, marvellous players, junior left back. And as I say, 4 1 um, wasn't flattering to Brazil. And it wasn't embarrassing for Scotland either. But that was a great occasion that game. I mean, when we drove up to the game before the, the match, there was Scottish fans playing against the Brazilian fans uh, on the car park. Great atmosphere in, in the whole stadium. And as I say, they. they Easily deserved to win, but maybe could have been a bit kinder to us and maybe just stopped it too. Is, is, there, any, is there anything that you would say can top playing for your, for your country in a World Cup competition? I suppose um, the ultimate would be to be successful in the World Cup. That must be the epitome of it. I mean, it's one thing representing your country, it's another thing winning the World Cup for your country. or even if you won a, the Nations Cup or um, Copa America, something that was equivalent to whatever uh, continent the teams were playing in. Um, but, so playing for your country is marvellous, but I've never sampled the other ones. Um, moving on to Liverpool, Kenny. Um, um, what uh, attracted you to Liverpool when you signed? There was a documentary, and uh, I think it was about May, on the television about Liverpool. Um, whilst we were away for, for a match against Wales with Scotland and uh, I watched the documentary and it just seemed as if it was a, a smashing club, very similar 
uh, lines as to what Celtic was running at the time. And I thought, if I was going to move, and he asked, I wouldn't mind uh, going to Liverpool. I'd been there when I was 15, um, for a couple of weeks, when Bill Shankly was there. Um, and they'd, they'd wanted me to sign then, but I thought I was too young to leave home. Uh, and I went back to Glasgow. So I knew a little bit about it, but no much. And so I had a little bit of an insight through the television documentary. And when I got there, um, the documentary was, had been pretty true to life because that was exactly the way I found it. They'd been successful the year before, um, just straight off the back of a European Cup one, the League Championship, and just missed out in the FA Cup. And they came in the start of the next pre-season and were really enthusiastic and determined to win something that year. And I thought, well, this will do me for starters. Was it, was it tough for you knowing that you had to um, replace the, the, the idol of the cop as such, Kevin Keegan, at the time? Um, no, Kevin had, had made his decision that he wanted to leave Liverpool. Um, I never influenced that in any way, shape or form. Kevin was marvellous um, servant for, for Liverpool Football Club. Um, but he decided to go and someone had to come in and replace him. And all I came in was to be myself and try and be myself. And if I could emulate what Kevin had done for the club, then I'd be happy with that. Um, so. As I say, other people might have set it up as, as something different, but all I did was wanted to go there and be myself. And I really enjoyed my time at Liverpool and we got one or two successes there. And Kevin also went on uh, to Hamburg and he was successful. So it worked out well for both people. Um, how much of an influence was Shankly at the club? Um, did, did, was it noticeable when you arrived there? Well, I never worked with Shanks, really. But um, I thought the work that he'd done at the early stages of a Liverpool football club. It'd never be where it is at this particular day. Um, Shanks was influential, obviously, and in, in instrumental in everything that's happened there. He appointed the staff, who and, and Bob Paisley and Joe Fagan, um, who'd taken over uh, after Shanks had gone. And he'd also appointed Ronnie Moran, who'd come in as a first-team coach. And subsequently, Roy Evans had come in. Uh, so he set the whole thing rolling, he set all the guidelines, all the principles, uh, the work ethos and everything. So he was, he, he was a major, major player. And, and appointing the people uh, to his staff, who subsequently took over from him, um, he left a hell of a legacy there as well. Um, we've uh, interviewed uh, Bob Paisley's wife, Jessie mm. Paisley, for this documentary. Talk to us about Bob. Um, what were your personal recollections of him, and how different was he from, say, someone like Jock Um I would say Bob was equally as astute as Jock. Um, any decision that Bob had to make in a game, invariably he made the right decision. Uh, the n number of times he put a substitute on who went on to have a major influence in the game. Uh, the number of times that he made a decision in team selection that was instrumental Liverpool winning that game. Um, was unbelievable. He did things um, because he knew that it was right to be done, maybe, and he had no justification, and, or no, certainly nobody could expect him to sit down and explain why he did it. But he made an awful lot of decisions that were right for the club. Um, he, was a, he was a humble man, just an ordinary guy in the street, 
they like to go for a put a, a bet on in the morning for the horses and then come into training. Very, very humble um, and a very good guy. Uh, somebody that that everybody could take to because it was, he was just that type of person. Everybody, when they saw him on television, took a liking to Bob Paisley. And certainly uh, the players at Liverpool had a tremendous respect and liking for the man. Um, there's this whole legend of Liverpool about the boot room legend. Um, can you explain that? Is it a myth? Does this actually exist? It did exist. It's gone now. Uh, on the way it was then, obviously, we, um, the reconstruction of the stadium and work done inside, it's, the things have changed. But the the ethos is still there for the boot room. It's been recreated recently. But the boot room is just exactly what they say it is. <laughs> it was a, a room full of boots, uh, the players' boots, and um, the opposition team, uh, coaches and managers were invited in for a drink after every game, irrespective of the score. Um, but during the week, uh, the staff used to sit in there and mull over what had happened during the week or what had happened in training or what had happened in the game. Uh, used to then have a wee liberation in there while they were discussing it. And it was it was just a couple of hampers to sit in. Uh, Boots on pegs, on on uh, certainly two walls, maybe three walls, and an old wooden uh, cupboard here, and there was some metal shelving, and that was it. Um, the decor was not uh, something that you would see in a designer magazine, but the conversations were brilliant. Um, Liverpool were obviously a massively successful club while you was there. Um, and so were English club sides as well in Europe and um, they were t- taking winning European Cups and winning UEFA Cups and Cupless Cups they were really the premier nation in Europe as such in terms of club football why do you reckon the English club was so successful in the 70s and 80s? I honestly don't know um, I mean I think Bob won five or six League championships, and only twice they didn't win it. The teams that did win the league won the European Cup. So the standard must have been pretty high. Uh, at that at that particular moment in time, I think they just, they just everything goes in phases, and I think that particular moment in time was a great time um, of quality players in the English first division. Um, Villa, Forest, ourselves. Or in the European Cup. Did you ever get the feeling that opposition teams, when they played the English champions, felt scared, frightened, or felt slightly inferior, or certainly respected your English sides? I think when they came to the grounds and it was European nights, certainly Anfield, Anfield was buzzing, and I think the atmosphere um, would have been a huge advantage for, for ourselves. I'm sure for for Villa and Forest, um, maybe the teams responded like that and maybe the, the English teams responded because of success previously that they thought well they can do it so can we and they gained confidence from that but certainly um, it was a marvellous time for for English football uh, the the late 70s early 80s as far as European Cup was concerned um, There was also a tradition in English football at the time 
um, for example, Liverpool were a team that loved using keeping the ball on the floor and playing passing football. But there was also many teams in English football that that um, practiced a sort of kick and rush style of football, uh, which was very British in its concept. Um, was it instilled in you at Liverpool that it was very important to play a pleasing passing type of game? Was that an important part of the club? Well, there's many ways to play a game of football. As long as you all play through the same rules, it's, it doesn't matter if it goes through the air or on the floor. It just suited Liverpool best. And that was what the people that were, were in charge of the teams knew. That's how they knew how to play. They'd been brought up through Shanks, then Bob, Joe um, and myself, and that's how we were taught to play. That's how we wanted to play. But that's not to say that the other, the other people were wrong. If they tried to pass it and couldn't pass it, they'd have been wrong. If we'd have tried to lump it and head it, then we weren't doing it properly either. We had players who preferred to pass it on the floor, um, whether it was pleased or not, other people and can decide whether it pleased them. But it certainly was easier for us because it was the way that we wanted to play. Um, um, Liverpool didn't have many English players at the time. Um, plenty of players from other parts of uh, Britain, but not many from, not many from England. Um, was there any particular reason? Uh, no, there was a when early 80s there was a lot of players from England. I mean, I think five or six of them get in the one English team uh, for a particular game. Um, there was always a few jokes there as well. So uh, we were, uh, no, it was well split. Joey Jones, Welsh. Matt Lawrence and Ronnie Whelan, Russia, Welsh. Uh, Lawrence and Whelan, Irish. It was a nice mixture. It was, uh, but there was always uh, some Scots in there somewhere. Um, in the 80s, Merseyside was almost the sort of football capital of the club, uh, club football. Um, what, what do you think makes um, Merseyside such a, a passionate place for football? Well, they love football. Um, they've been brought up in it, certainly Liverpool. I mean, Everton were a, a strong team to start with and Liverpool have taken over um, in the last, what, 20 odd, 30 years. They just love the football there. Um, everybody thinks that they're able to play football, so that helps them. We are fulfilling one of their dreams, which is they'd love to have played for a respective club, whether it was Everton or Liverpool. And as a player, uh, you're fulfilling the dream of the fan because they'd love to have done it. Um, and all you can do is do it to the best of your ability. And I think if you do that in Merseyside, they appreciate that. Um, certainly in the 80s, uh, Everton had a great run of success as well. Um, and Liverpool continues to be successful. So that was the place to be early 80s in, in Liverpool and as I said earlier they love the, they love the soccer um, there's a great rivalry but it's a nice rivalry um, there's friendship as well amongst that rivalry which is great in the one city um, <coughs> Moving on to the European Cup final in 1985 against Juventus game <coughs> with a high disaster um, um, obviously it was a tragic moment um, what what, what were your recollections at the time of what happened and did, do you believe the game should have been played? We didn't really know too much about what was going on. Um, there was plenty of stories coming in but there was no real facts. Um, the only fact we knew was we had to stay there and laterally they came in and said the game's going to go ahead. Uh, I think there's an awful lot of people left the ground and it must have been of their opinion that football um, 
was he that important to them that night? I don't think it was really important to Juventus or Liverpool either. Um, I think there's, there's obviously two ways to look at it. If they didn't play the game, would that cause further trouble? And then other people say, well, in playing the game, it was disrespectful to the people who had died. And I don't think anybody would ever want to be disrespectful to any people that come along innocently to watch a football match and lost their lives. So whatever they did, they couldn't win. There was no decision that was going to be the right decision. And once it was made, you just had to go along with it. But I don't think it was a game that was played um, with 100% concentration from either side. In terms of the um, European Cup final there and the highs of the last to Kenny, um, how did the Liverpool players motivate themselves to play in that match? Well, there was no real um, motivation. I think the, the match was, for the European Cup final, pretty low-key after the events that had happened. Although we didn't know exactly what had happened, we knew there was, there was something happened and we just guessed it had been some fatalities. Um, I don't think um, either team would have gone on to the pitch with the same preparation, or concentration or determination as what they would have in normal circumstances. And these certainly weren't normal circumstances. Um, I think even the fact Juventus won the trophy, um, their celebrations were probably um, muted a little bit from what they normally have been. But there was no way that they could have made a decision and been got 100% support from anybody. Some people think it should have been played, some think it shouldn't. But once the decision to go was made, then you've got to go. But you certainly couldn't say that you would go with the same passion and commitment as what you would have uh, in normal circumstances. Um, did you did you actually see any of the trouble in the stadium that night? I never saw any. locked away? No, I never saw any at all. Um, in terms of the Hillsborough disaster, to have actually been, been obviously been at Heysel that night, as managed coach of Liverpool, to actually witness the Hillsborough um, tragedy, um, it must have been really tough for you as a as a football man to have been in your. I think you was at Ibrox as well in 1971 right. with uh, Celtic. So to actually to actually. Um, witnessed three footballing tragedies um, must have been really tough for you as a, as a person. Well, I never saw because it was, um, I'd left the game and it was last couple of minutes, I think. And it was supporters trying to come down the stairs and they had the roar and others trying to get back up. They just, there was obviously um, mayhem on the stairs. That was just um, an unfortunate incident. Uh, Heysel was um, two sets of fans who were integrated um, and Hillsborough was the fact that um, the game had kicked off and people tried to get in. Um, if it had been delayed 10-15 minutes, which wouldn't have been uh, unheard of, then uh, maybe some of those fatalities, maybe all of them, would never have happened. But people go along to watch the game and they were coming to watch the semi-final of the cup that day um, in total innocence and you never know what's, what's going to happen but they only came to watch a match. There was no malice, no vindictiveness or anything in, in any way, shape or form with the fans. They were getting in amongst their own fans and as I say, unfortunately for them, uh, 
that was uh, the last time they ever went to a game. But I mean, it, it's tough for anybody that's close to it, but not as tough as what it is for the people who are actual relatives or, or loved ones who, who they lost there. So, although we were a little bit removed, it was still an emotional time for everyone. Um, I think in, in the aftermath of it, what it did show was Liverpool always prided itself in being a family club, and I think that really shone through then. Uh, they opened the grounds and, and the stadium to the supporters. They came along uh, in the droves and, and the city, although they were two great teams, and Liverpool and Everton were united in the grief. Um, they, thousands of people, Everton supporters, came along to pay their respects by laying the flowers on the pitch and just walking around the ground. Um, so, as I say, I don't think there's any any way that anybody could say that, that it was anything other than tough for anybody who was involved in it, but the most affected people would be the families and loved ones. Um, did, 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 did this affect your desire to carry on in the game at, at that time? Did I you know feel, that. Did you feel football was really that important? My football, football is no any isn't as important as um, either um, or anyone of those three disasters. Football's important, but it was, it's not that important that, that somebody should lose their life through coming to watch a game. Um, but at that particular moment in time, I, I never even thought about anything other than just try to help the people who who uh, were suffering more than, than I was at that particular time. Um, what was the secret of your coaching success at Liverpool? Can you, um, and do you think and being in charge at Liverpool, you could have halted the decline of the team in the 1990s? Well, the second one's hypothetical. Um, but certainly, I think, when when you're in charge of any team, uh, I think the more decisions you make, the harder to be correct, whether you're buying a player, selling a player, selecting a side, uh, choosing when to give them days off, or when to run hard, or when to run gently. Um, the more often you get those decisions right, the more often you're going to be successful. And I think it helps also when you have people who are committed to the club. And the players that we had at Liverpool at that time were totally committed. Um, I'd come straight from the from the pitch as one of those lads into the, into the managerial chair. And when you walked in the dressing room, it was silence. I'd been buzzing just before you walked in, but as soon as you walk in, they just put that invisible sheet up between you and them, and you think, oh, okay. Um, they showed great respect towards myself and the position and the job that I'd been asked to do. Uh, and because of that, I mean, the respect I had from his players was only enlarged because uh, it was more difficult for them, the change, than what it was for myself. And the players who, who carried on afterwards um, were absolutely brilliant in the way that they, they conducted themselves and the way they put themselves about their job. So. I don't think there's a, any one particular success. I think it's just a combination of things, and I think that would be the same for, for anybody. I think people like to be treated properly. I always try to treat players the way that I was treated uh, as a player. And if they were wrong, they were wrong. But if they were right, they were right. So if you treat people the way that you think they should be taught, I think you get a lot back from them. And certainly, we get an awful lot back from those players. Um. 
Was winning the league with Blackburn as a coach more satisfying than all your success at Liverpool? Being a new team, unfashionable, etc. Um, oh, but it was enjoyable. I mean, there's, you wouldn't say one was better than the other. Um, for me in the celebrations, other people might say, well, it was easier at Liverpool, it was, or it was better at Liverpool, or it was easier or harder at Blackburn. They're all entitled to their own opinions. But every time you get success, it's really enjoyable. Because to get success, you must have had a few, a few downers as well. Um, it was particularly emotional for, for the owner, Jack Walker. He'd uh, been a steel magnet and made millions, and to his credit, he'd put the money back into the club. And if he'd never been there, Blackburn Rovers wouldn't be where it is today either. He put loads of money in it. Um, I tried my best to spend it for him. And everybody got the reward. Jack got his dream, the Blackburn winning the title. Uh, and I got total enjoyment out of seeing the team evolve and get on to win the Premiership. And there was an awful lot of people, Ray Halford as coach, uh, every single one of the players who made a great contribution to that. And if you don't all work together, you don't get the success. Um, you're not always going to see eye to eye every day of the week. But as long as it doesn't interfere with your work, then you don't take the problems onto the pitch, then everybody will be, will, will be okay. Uh, and certainly we did that. But I wouldn't like to say what gave me the, the, the greatest thrill, um, whether it was winning something that Liverpool was a manager or winning the title at Blackburn. But the best part uh, of your football in life definitely is playing. The managerial side or the coaching side, it's only a poor substitute. So. Uh, the success is marvellous and it's the best part of the football. Uh, success as a player is even more satisfying. Um, was, was beating Liverpool um, to win that championship with Blackburn, did that give you mixed feelings? No, we lost. We lost to Anfield. Um, but I don't think anybody at Liverpool would be surprised to know that when I went there representing Blackburn, um, that I would want to beat Liverpool. And there's not many times I want to see Liverpool lose. But when you're in charge of the other team, I don't think you'd be fair. I don't think you'd be honest if you, if you didn't want to beat Liverpool. The same as you want to beat every other club. But then it's a softener if you do lose. Because you've won both ways, haven't you? You said um, being a coach is almost like being a poor substitute uh, when there's success. But what do you think makes a good coach? I think the presentation, though, of what you're trying to get through to the players, how you put it over, um, time and patience in trying to put it over. Uh, and I think if you've got the knowledge and you can put it over properly, I think that's going to give you um, a hell of a start in education players. But the education of players is, is, is down to themselves as well. I mean, everybody can sit in the classroom, hear the same words from the teacher's mouth, and everybody walks out with different results. Exactly the same for football. They all listen to the same thing but pick it up differently and achieve different standards. So, I mean, the better you put it over, the more simplistic it is. And the, the, the better chance you have if a guy can take it in of getting improvement and getting success. Um, Scotland England games, um, it was obviously massive matches. I think you played at Wembley when the Scottish Tartan Army celebrated on the pitch in Wembley. What made these games special? Well, it's just uh, Scotland, England, isn't it? It's just uh, 
the Scots are very proud and nationalistic and the main rival is England. And if they're competing against England at any anything, uh, they want to see Scots win. Um, it's just brought up with it, you're just uh, inbred. And as I say, is it, even if you go there and you work there, it doesn't make any difference. It maybe probably makes you a little bit worse that you, you want to achieve the success even even more against them than what you do if you live in Scotland. Because if you're working in England and England gains success, you've got to live with it for a year. In terms of modern football, Kenny, um, you've taken more of a, a backseat role as such in football at the moment. Um, how, how have you seen football progress in the last 10 to 15 years? Do you think it's been positive? I think with the advent of uh, satellite television covering the games, I think uh, it's been a great advert for soccer. Um, the Premiership uh, has been gone, what, eight or nine years and it's it's, it's really flourishing. Um, most of the clubs are playing to full houses. Uh, the product's very good. Uh, there's a great, there's a high standard of players. Uh, the entertainment's good. Obviously, every team can win and be successful. But I think the product's very good. I think um, it's enjoyable to go and watch. And I think it's really kicked on. Um, whether it's reached saturation point now or whether it's got a good bit to go, I wouldn't know, I'm not an analyst. But I just know that when you go to them, it's enjoyable to watch them. Do you feel that maybe there's um, too much money in the game now, that there could, there's a danger that um, money could kill the game as such? There's always been teams who are more affluent than others. Um, in any stage of football. I think there's a lot of money in the game at the moment. Um, I think the players deserve what they're getting because if they're generating income for the game, then they deserve to be rewarded. Um, pro rata for that. When teams go out and spend 45 to 50 million pounds on a player, then uh, I think it's a lot of people who turn around and say, well, that's obscene. <laughs> it might be obscene, but uh, if that's the market that they're in, then that's what they're going to have to pay. Um, I think the, mon the, play the, the game is a wash with money. Uh, and I think there's a huge differential now between the teams who are affluent and the teams that are poor. And I think there's a lot of teams who are at the, the lower end of the market who are struggling for their existence. But then I think that's always been the case. But I think the differential is greater now. I think the players have got a lot stronger. Um, whereas before it was clubs who were very strong and almost players being powerless. I think it's almost gone the other way now. Uh, and I don't think it's good for either party to, to be the more dominant one. I think there should be a rationale from both and I think the game would succeed uh, better if, if that was the case. But it's still, still a game that everybody loves. It's a game that everybody loves to talk about. Um, and it's a game that you still enjoy watching. How do you see your your own personal future for football in the next, in the coming months and years? Um, do you still have a, a passion and appetite for the game? And um, uh, do, yeah, 
what, why, why did you? Obviously, you're very ex experienced. You have a wealth of talent, both footballing and coaching talent. Um, why did you decide to cut short your coach coaching career as such? It was just a decision I made. I thought it was uh, in the best interest of of Kenny Douglas. Um, you can't go on forever, and at some stage you've got to sit back and say, "Hold on." Um, I think it's right for me uh, to take a back seat, and I think that that time is right. Um, whether that remains um, the way it is, um, who knows? But certainly, I'm enjoying uh, the non-activity at the moment. Uh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I can get up in the morning and almost be my own boss. So instead of being uh, answerable to somebody else other than my wife, but. I love the football and I'm, I'm involved in the periphery of it uh, and outside. So, as I say, it's some, something that's been very, very good to me. I've had a great living from football. I've had great moments in football. There's been some sadness. Um, but then I wouldn't change it for anything. I would take away maybe the three tragedies that happened uh, in my career or through the life that I was in football. And that would be all. The results that you lost uh, are far outweighed by the one times that you won. So I wouldn't swap that unless I was getting more victories. Um, I can go away and say, well, you've had a great life in soccer. Maybe it's time for you now to enjoy your own life. Uh, and if I continue in that vein, then I won't go back in. But then you never know. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Kenny. Thank you very much for your time. I wish you all the best in the future. Thank Thanks you. very much. Thank you.